In Jesus' name, amen. Back to Genesis chapter 24, where we're nearing the conclusion of our study of the life of Abraham. And as we've noted in our study, that the story transitions from about this time in our account from Abraham to Isaac, as Isaac becomes, be, begins to become more prevalent in, in the account. And that's because he is a son of the promise, the promise that God had made to Abraham concerning a land and a seed and a blessing. And the biblical history follows that promise, doesn't it? It follows the people of promise, Israel. The biblical record follows the land of promise, the land of Israel. The biblical record follows the seed that was promised, a seed that would be a blessing to the whole world, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the book of Galatians, who blessed the whole world and that he provided salvation for the whole world through the cross. And so when you really look at world history, ancient history, you, you got to wonder, why is the Bible so narrowly focused? When there's no doubt, so much going on in the world as, as population grew and civilizations developed. You know, on the average, you know, newspaper of the day, there would be news from all around the world, yet the Bible is so singularly focused on this track of following, really, the, the details of the Abrahamic covenant. And yet we, we realize that's because God is doing a work to reclaim mankind. And that's the story of the Bible. It's a story of reconciliation. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of rescue. And, and the Bible tells us how God is going to accomplish that. He promised it way back with the seed promise of the woman, that the seed of the woman would be conqueror someday. We find that in the promise to Abraham and, and reaffirmed to his, his sons and grandsons and descendants. Because though God created man perfect, and when God created mankind, he said it was very good. We recognize sin entered that experience, that interrupted that creation, brought, cur brought the curse to creation and damnation to mankind. Because when Adam and Eve ate of that forbidden fruit and disobedience and rebellion against God, the Bible tells us in Romans 5.12, sin entered into the world. And death by sin. Death is a result of sin. And many people look around the world and wonder why there's so much death and suffering, and it's because of mankind. We brought sin into our experience, into the world. And ever since that time, God has, has charted a course. In fact, we're told in eternity past, God had charted this course of how to rescue mankind from not only the condemnation of sin, which is eternal separation from God in hell, but also from, its, from the curse of this world and from the effect of sin in our lives. And, and that's what we're looking forward to. And so the Bible begins with, with this promise of a seed, and throughout the Old Testament scriptures, we see the promise made to Israel of future glory in the millennial kingdom. And for believers, we look forward to that glorious future. That's what we're looking forward to. 2 Peter 3.13 says this, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what God wants to restore, the righteousness that would dominate the earth because it is directed with him and guided by his truth. And that's going to happen yet in future. The time's coming when Jesus Christ is going to return and judge this earth and usher in the righteousness. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 says, Then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father and he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. 
That's the end of the story, and that's really the beginning of eternity when sin and the remembrance of sin and its effect and the curse are no more. That's the story of the Bible. From, from Genesis to Revelation, it's about God rescuing mankind because of sin. And God chose Israel, chose Abraham, to be the provider of the Savior and to be messengers of the covenant. That was their responsibility. God says, I chose you because you were the fewest people, you were the least people. I chose you simply in my grace because I, I loved you and it's a choice I made. But he chose them not because they were so special, but because he simply made a choice to use them to represent him, to provide the Bible, the Word of God, the Old Testament scriptures especially. And the New Testament writings were write, written primarily by Jewish people. And God, through them, provided the Messiah. Now today, in the New Testament time, God has uses a different group of people to represent him. It's called the church. Not the physical building, local church, but the universal church called the body of Christ, comprising of all believers in Jesus Christ. And 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we are ambassadors for Christ. And that's why it's so important to understand the Bible in, in, in its historical context, to understand what God is doing in history, because now we understand where we fit in God's program. We are here to be ambassadors. We know we're not, we're pilgrims and strangers. We're not, we're here passing through. In fact, the only reason we're here is because we have God's rescue message, the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again according to the scripture. And that on that cross, he paid for our sin. See, the Bible says, the soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. And that man is born separated from God and deserving of eternal damnation. But God stepped in. We see throughout Scripture and throughout our Bible studies that little word, but, which always seems to indicate God stepping into man's experience, God stepping in to rescue mankind. And Ephesians chapter 2 says, But God, who was rich in mercy for his great love in which he loved us, even when we are dead in sins, and sent Christ, if I can paraphrase this slightly. God intercedes. And it's that message that we bear. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we have the ministry of reconciliation. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It's part of his rescue plan is to save people from eternal hell. And he did that through Jesus Christ. And that's why how God brings man back to a right relationship with himself. Because of our sin, man needs to be forgiven, man needs to be cleansed, and man needs to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And God has provided that in Christ. And you and I have that message. You and I are the bearers of that message. I was visiting with a young believer recently who I meet with regularly and um, who was really growing in his young faith and we're talking about the gospel, the good news, and he has been coming to a realization that there's a desperate need for the good news out there. He's realizing family and friends and, and co-workers, associates are on their way to hell. And it hit him quite hardly. And it was refreshing to find a believer who was so aware of the fact that why else are we here? He, that's the words he used. This, this is why we're here. This is why we're here, because why isn't God taking us away to, to glory in heaven? Why is God leaving his children whom he loves to suffer in, the, in this, in this sin-cursed earth and all that goes with it? Why does he take us to glory the minute we're born? Because he has a job for us to do, doesn't he? We're here as ambassadors. We have the not only the ministry of reconciliation, but the messages of reconciliation. So God wants to use us today, just as he used Old Testament Israel. And that story, which we find in the Bible, 
beginning in Genesis, continuing into the New Testament, is still being written. Many have pointed out that the book of Acts, which records the history of the birth of the church and the early church, just ends without an ending. It just abruptly ends in the, in the ministry of Paul the Apostle. And that's because the story is still being written today for the last 2,000 plus years. The story has been being written concerning God's redeeming love through the Lord Jesus Christ to the world around us. And that's what God is doing today. And that's why it's so important that we as individuals, as a local church, align ourselves with what God is up to. Because that's, what his, that's one of his primary purposes for us to be here as we live to glorify him. And you have to ask ourselves, if the book of Acts was still being written, and sometimes you wonder if there's some heavenly scribe in heaven continuing to write the record of the church, what would it write about the church today? Where would our names fit in the record today? And that's why we take so much encouragement from the early church who was so passionate about their faith, for, faith in Christ and their desire to stand for Christ and to live for Christ and to witness for Christ because that is what God is up to. And so as this Genesis record moves on to Isaac, it's just another step, another step in that, in that effort of God, the objective of God to redeem mankind. And God's very patient in it, with it, isn't he? Taking all these years as God builds his family of, family of Israel, his special people, as God builds his church, God is moving forward with his plan, and it will culminate someday. And if you're a believer here this morning and put your faith in Christ, you'll see that and experience that because God has a glo glorious future for you and I today. And so as we approach chapter 24 of the book of Genesis, what we find here before the death of Abraham, which is recorded in the next chapter, Abraham has one more important thing to accomplish, at least recorded for us here in the Bible, and that's a bride for his son. And Genesis chapter 24 is a wonderful love story of a, of a concerned father finding a godly bride for his son. So let's begin to read here, and we're just going to, this is a long chapter, I don't know if we'll get through it all today, but we're just going to kind of step through it because really what this chapter is about is, is discovering the will of God. It has a specific application here. It's the father helping to find the right bride for his son, but it's a bride within the will of God. And we find many of the dynamics here of the believers seeking the will of God that exist in this chapter. A lot of lessons as we step through this. And so let's read verses 1 through 9 to begin with here this morning. It says, Now Abraham was old and well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath, only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this, mat this matter. And so here Abraham makes plans and sends his servant 
to acquire a bride for Isaac. And what's encouraging about this first part of this section is Abraham's servant, the one who ruled over his house, was a man he could trust, wasn't it? It's just an encouraging note to recognize here's someone that Abraham could, could trust with things that were most precious and important to him. And it's good to have those kind of believing friends in our lives, isn't it? One, that, one who shares our faith and commitment and respect for the ways of God. And so, and Abraham trusted him, but he recognized he could trust him because his servant was one who trusted God, and Abraham could trust God to direct the servant in accomplishing his will. Here was a man that Abraham knew would seek God's will. He wouldn't use worldly standards or objectives or ideas in finding the bride for Isaac, but he would seek the will of God, and Abraham trusted his friend and trusted God would direct him in that, in that decision. But in doing so, he gives him some instructions some guidance, doesn't he? He tells them, first of all, that don't, do not take a wife from the local Canaanite women. He says, you're not going to take her here. You're going to go back to my family. Now, for, for Abraham, his family was a family who apparently believed in Jehovah. They were believers. And that's what it represents for us. He says, you're not going to take, take a wife from the unsaved of the neighborhood, you're going to go back and take a wife from amongst the saved, if in today's lingo, as we would put it. And Abraham was aware that a compromise in the choice of a light partner who, had secular and un, who was secular and had an ungodly worldview would spell spiritual disaster for his son Isaac and affect generations to come. And that's especially important when you consider the fact that God had a purpose for those generations, did he not, in the Abrahamic covenant? to be the representatives of Jehovah, to be his special people, to provide the Savior. And so Abraham says, not from among the Canaanite women, no matter how beautiful, how attractive, or how convenient, do not take one from there. In the New Testament, let's turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll take the time to look at that this morning. We find the, the Bible puts it in a similar way. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Someone has said, and I haven't heard this for a long time, but one bad apple spoils the whole lot, the whole peck or bushel or barrel or whatever the case may be. And that's the concept here, here in, in St. Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 14, he tells them, he says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, we know what a yoke is. It's not an egg, by the way, if you're in today's terminology. I like eggs for breakfast, but we know what was the... It was the wooden beam that joined, le wooden leather beams that joined two oxen together, or whatever animals, who had to pull together in the same speed. And that's why you didn't, you know, hook up a, you know, a, uh, a mule and a, and a poodle in the same yoke. They just didn't, wouldn't pull very good together, would they? There had to be an equal yoke. They understood that, the fact that you had to put two similar animals in order to get the job done efficiently. And so he applies this to marriage or even to a business relationship. So whatever it is, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And he says, you don't have anything in common. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? The believer should live for righteousness. The unbeliever lives, lo lives lawlessly. What communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with the Belial? Or what part has he that believeth with an unbeliever? And what agreement has a temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so God, in the New Testament, reaffirms this concept that Abraham understood. 
that you cannot have a partnership, marriage or otherwise, with an unbeliever and expect to, to be able to get along unless somehow you achieve the same level. Now, we know an unbeliever can't live on the level of a believer because they don't have the spirit of God, they don't have the truth of God, they're not a child of God. They might share some of the same values, but, but they do not, they're not inspired or led by the spirit of God. And so too often in those relationships, the believer comes down to the level of the unbeliever, doesn't he? And that's exactly what we read in our scripture reading today in Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God gave, through Moses, instructions to Israel, that same instruction. He says, don't take wives or husbands from among the lost, because, he says, they will turn your sons away from following me. In fact, that's why we see in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the whole idea that when Israel was to come into the land of Canaan, as they begin to conquer the land, they were to, they were to destroy their culture which was a religious culture, an idol-worshiping culture. They were to break down their images and take down their groves, and they were to destroy that idol-worshiping spiritualistic culture. They were to have no part of it, not allow it to infiltrate into their lives. And, and the Bible warns us that an unequal yoke would, would, would have that effect on people. More than once I've seen young guys or gals who meet someone they're attracted to who is not a Christian, not saved, or maybe even sometimes not even interested in walking with the Lord. It's almost similar, isn't it? But they think they can manage it. They think they can maintain their faith, and they think they've got the tiger by the tail until they realize that tail starts whipping them around. And it doesn't happen. In every case, or in most cases, disaster happens. And I've, through the years, been gone back and met with some old friends that were of that mindset who married unbelievers and had opportunities to maybe share the gospel with their significant other and find out the unbeliever has completely forgotten what the gospel's about, why it's important. And to think that a child of God who at one time enjoyed the Lord could marry an unbeliever and produce children that they never took time to witness to and to find a parent that will spend eternity with their God because they had trusted Christ and children who never hear the good news unless God would intervene in some other way. It's a tragedy, absolutely tragic. And that's the warning here. God, Abraham gave his, his, his servant that specific direction, do not take a wife from among the unsaved in today's vernacular. So let's go back to Genesis 24. So Abraham gives him that clear instruction. I think it's interesting here that he says, don't ask Isaac what he wants. You know, because he knows that if the young man, like Isaac, got his sight set on some beautiful Canaanite woman, that his head turns to mush and he never could make a rational decision. And that's why he needed dad to help out. He gives him a second instruction. He tells him in verses 5 through 9, don't take my son back there. You know, the servant's perspective, well, if this, you know, this gal won't come with me, I mean, she doesn't know what Isaac looked like, doesn't know if, you know, he's cross-eyed and pigeon-toed and, you know, she, she, she's never met him. Will, will she come with me? He says, well, let's take Isaac. He's a good-looking man, and what woman wouldn't want to come? But Abraham says, no. No, whatever the rationale was, the reasoning was, don't take my son back there. Don't take him back there. And the reason he gives is because God called us to this land. You see, another aspect of doing the will of God is to recognize that to return to where we came from. And that's the, that's the illustration here. 
It's just like Israel who wanted to return to Egypt. It's like the believer who longs for the world to go back to where God called us out of and not to dwell in the place God called us to is spiritual disaster. Romans 12, 2 tells us to not be conformed to this world. And Abraham had an idea that if Isaac went back there, he might realize that there are people who don't live in tents. They lived in a tent. Maybe they actually had houses back where they came from, comfortable beds. Who knows? You know, the, the city life, the high life, you know, back, it, back in the homeland. And he says, no, that's not, we're not returning. And that's a tendency today for believers to want to go back to live the life of the lost and the envy of the lost and how they lived. James 4.4 4 says, adulterers and adulteresses, this is spiritual adultery and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever there wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And Abraham said, no, we're not going to go and be a friend with the world. And it's not that where Nahor lived, that it was a bad place. It's just that that was no longer their home. They now belong to this land where God had promised them. And for you and I as believers, that's where we belong. We are to walk with our God as pilgrims and strangers on the earth. And that's why some of our, our um, verses for the month in your bulletin have to do with our citizenship and our orientation. That's much, much of the lesson of Abraham, that our home, our citizenship is in heaven, and that's how God expects us to live, not according to this world's appetites and standards and perspectives, but we live in light of the truth of God. And so Abraham didn't want Isaac to be tempted to stay and live with the family where it's more comfortable, better living condition, more action, more bright lights, or whatever the case that may have attracted him. Because God had given them a new, a new identity and a new home. And Hebrews 11.15 reminds us that they would be mindful of where they, if they, where they came from. They'd have an opportunity to return. In that hall of fame of faith, they remind us of these people of faith that they could have called to mind what they used to have or what they could have had, where they came from. And if you become occupied and preoccupied with that, you spend all your days looking at the at shiny objects in the catalog or longing for what life could have been or used to be, you're going to go right back there. That's what Hebrews 11 says. But instead, they were mindful of their heavenly country, and that's what Abraham wanted to ensure with his son. You see, God reminds us that going back is not an option for those seeking God's best and God's will in their lives. And so Abraham, here in Genesis 24, helps make his decision for his son, this young adult. And you know, I, today I can't imagine people, young men today saying, stay out of my business, old man. And yet God, is, through his father, is giving him godly advice. It's kind of parenting 101, isn't it? We are called as parents to give active spiritual guidance to our children. Now, as they become older and independent, we do send them out from the home. But it doesn't mean we quit giving them guidance and direction. So Abraham gave instructions to his servants. Two things. Make sure we marry a godly gal, a saved gal, as we'd say today, one who has faith in Christ. Secondly, don't cozy up to the values and lifestyle of the ungodly. Don't allow that to be the basis upon which you build your life and your marriage. Well, so the story goes on as the servant leaves. Let's pick it up in verse 10 and read a few more verses. Verse 10, the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed. 
For all his master's goods were in his hand, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia, the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water. Now, there's a whole lot of time between those two verses. It was a trip to get back there. Not sure how many days, but it was at least weeks. And so he kneeled down, verse 11, at the time when women go out to draw water. And then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, he prayed. What a wonderful thing to do when you're seeking the will of God. O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink, and she says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Here we find this trusted man with a prayer of sincerity to seek the will of God in their lives. And he didn't ask for anything specific. He didn't ask for any special kind of gal for this special, uh, this special son, Isaac. He just asked for the will of God to be done. And it's also encouraging to note that this prayer was made before they had any women in their sights. Because it usually doesn't work that way. Usually, someone enters into our, into our rearview mirror or we're in our sights, and we think, God, can I have that? And that complicates it, doesn't it? They approach this issue with a respect to the will of God, whatever, it, whatever would come in their lives. You could call this, this test that he gave, this question of watering his camels, a fleece, we call it, don't we, today? And maybe you haven't even heard that term for a while. Sometimes people think we should place a fleece before the Lord. And, it comes, and that comes from the story of Gideon. Remember Gideon? When God wanted to call him to deliver Israel. He wanted to be sure that it was God's will, and so he took a fleece and laid it out, and he asked for, he asked for it twice. You know, once, once, once it had to be dry, once it had to be wet, to be uh, from the dew of the night before. That's found in Judges 6, if you're not familiar with the story. But he, you know, and though we may criticize Gideon for having to do it twice, once should have been enough, if, if that even, you have to respect the fact that he wanted to be sure of God's will, at least. You can respect that. He wanted to be absolutely sure he was moving out in the will of God. You also see in the Old Testament, sometimes people casting a lot to determine God's will. And the important thing in those messages isn't the methods. It's not methods we use today, we see today. We don't see them taught in the New Testament. But the lesson from those is a, is a desire to know the will of God, to recognize that our God knows best in our lives. And so often we don't seek His face until we get into trouble or into a jam or into a fix, instead of recognizing that God has a place for us every day. And I'm often encouraged, and I mention this often, Acts 9, 6, when Paul first got saved, one of the first words he uttered, at least recorded for us, is, Lord, what will you have me to do? What a wonderful prayer to start our days. Because I sometimes start my days with, Lord, help me get through my bucket list today. Not quite the same, is it? And sometimes God has to stick a stick in our spokes to slow us down to realize that it's not my will that needs to be done, it's your will that needs to be done. And maybe God has a completely different program. Maybe there's a person that needs, a, needs some encouragement, lifting up, or whatever the case may be. Sometimes I think the alternative is maybe a good long nap, but it doesn't always work that way. But the, but the New Testament, it's, you see it a little differently. Let's go to Romans chapter 12. And while you do see in Acts chapter 1, 
the disciples casting lots to discernment a replacement for Judas, and the lot fell on Matthias. We do see that in Acts chapter 1. But beyond that, you see more a different kind of guidance in discovering the will of God. And one of the best passages in regards to discovering the will of God, I think, is found here in Romans 12. Because throughout my life, I've seen a lot of books on how to know the will of God. In at least one time, I don't know if people even seek, read those anymore, but there used to be books written on how to discover the will of God, how to know the will of God. And, and I said, why not read the Bible? What does it have to say about knowing the will of God? And here's what God says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you may present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is where it starts. This is the foundation of knowing the will of God. It begins with you and I presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice. Surrender to God. That's what it starts with, a desire to do His will. You know, so often, like I said, we get in a fix and all of a sudden we want to know the will of God. Where God says it's, a, it's, a, it's an attitude of life to recognize that our flesh always takes us astray. The Bible promises and warns us that the flesh reaps darkness. And that we can't always trust our own intuition. And we need to lay our desires before the Lord much like the servant did. Lord, prosper me, direct me today. What do you have for me today? Show me your will today. And that's what this is saying here. It's a surrender. In other words, we approach the will of God with a submission to the will of God before it even is revealed to us. Because our Father knows best, because His truth is right. And so that's what it means to surrender ourselves to the will of God. And I think many Christians sometimes never even get to this first, first principle in Romans 12, 1 and 2 of an absolute surrender and respect for God's will in our lives. Instead, we live our Christian lives thinking, okay, I'll do a few, th few things for God. I might teach a class, I might help out here, I might serve there. But that's too often on our terms. This is kind of risky. God might call me to do something I don't want to do. God may, let not, may not let me get done what I want to get done today. God might take me in a completely diff different direction. God might call me to a missionary to some place I don't want to go. And all those complaints... Excuses are rooted in trusting in ourselves, isn't it? Self-dependence as we weigh our personal risks. And yet what better hands could we be in than the hands of God? That's one of the lessons of this chapter in Genesis 24. What better hands could we be in when we trust in the living and almighty God? And so God tells us here first to surrender. Secondly, it tells us in verse 2, don't be conformed to this world. In other words, don't Adopt a secular worldview, ungodly principles. We saw that in Deuteronomy 7 in our scripture reading. Completely destroy the culture of the world because God has a different culture for his people. Different instructions. God's ways are higher than our ways, and so we look to him for wisdom. And so don't adopt the world's perspectives. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word transformation, we understand, comes from the Greek word we sometimes tr translate metamorphosis, it's metamorpheo, and it simply means that God is just like the butterfly, he's translating us from a caterpillar to a butterfly, he's making changes in our lives. That's why we read the word of God, that's what God is doing in our lives, he's transforming us by renewing our mind to him and his word, by the renewing of our minds. These are things we're to, we, are to be, we are to do. 
You know, and even in the original, to be not conformed to this world is a personal choice, not to adopt this world's values. To be transformed is actually in a passive, is let something be done to you. Let God change you. Isn't that wonderful? God doesn't ask us to produce change. He says, I'll do the change, just let me. And it starts with presenting ourselves to God. The result is to prove something that is good and acceptable and wonderful and perfect, the will of God in our lives. This verse is a very apt, very popular passage, but very aptly describes our walk with God as he grows us to be more like Christ. And then we'll be able to live the will of God. Now, sometimes the will of God is specific. It's thus saith the Lord, do not lie to one another, don't steal, don't kill, and so on. We have direct commands, but sometimes it's simply precepts that guide us as we apply principles of biblical righteousness to our lives. And this seems to be the New Testament pattern. In, in Philippians 1.9, we're told that God, there's a prayer the apostle prays for the Philippian believers that their love will grow in discernment, knowledge and discernment. And as we learn the knowledge of God's word, we become discerning in regards to what's good in our life and what isn't so good. And these are the dynamics that guide us in seeking the will of God today in our lives. And why the difference? Why is there a difference? You know, when they were so, you know, Israel was an external people and they always used these, these other gimmicks, if you want to call them that, um, to discover the will of God. And it may be because you and I today, if you're a Christian here this morning, are dwelt by the Spirit of God. That's the difference. We're told to walk in the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. We're filled with the Spirit of God who teaches us and enables us, who leads us and guides us. And that's our dependence today. And that's what's described here in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let's go back to Genesis 24. Genesis chapter 24. And we'll get through a little bit more here this morning. And so pick it up in here in verse 15. And he says, And it happened before he had finished speaking that, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with a pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin no man had known her, and she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And a servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, Drink, my lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and, and drew for all his camels. And the man, wondering at her, remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. We see here God in his sovereignty beginning to answer the prayer of the servant. This is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Happening just like he had hoped. And it wasn't so much that God was doing it the servant's way. It's maybe because the servant was sensing God's leading in the way he should go. And we'll see more of that next time. And this was a big decision. Because here comes the first gal walking down to the well. And he begins to wonder, is this the one? It was a big decision to make. Because he had to go home and sell this to Isaac, didn't he? And when he saw her, he might have thought, she's beautiful. Check, don't worry about that part of the, the presentation to Isaac. 
And then she began to do just what the servant had hoped. And she drew the water for him and for his camel. And I think it's interesting here that this test of not only giving him water, because that was likely she would comply to give him water, but to also to offer freely to water his camels was not just a sign, but an indication of her heart. She was a servant. And that's normal in Christ followers, Jehovah followers, if you prefer in the Old Testament, is that God creates in us a spirit of service. Where we step up, we see a need, and we respond. And that should be normal. That's what God develops in our lives. God, God brings before us needs, and it's really the spirit of Christ. We're told to let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. And that chapter is in the context of service. Jesus said in Matthew 28 that he didn't come to, to, to be served, but to serve. Now, if anybody deserved to be served, it was him. And I sometimes watch in Christianity, there's a lot of people around there expecting to be served and letting it, and there's a lot of people who are, who are very willing to let everyone else do all the work. And I know it's because God has yet to develop in them a spirit of service. That's automatic. That's normal. That's natural. And so this may have been more than just a sign that, okay, this check off this box, she did it this way. It's a fact that he's, in this gal, he found someone who was eager to serve. You know, in reality, when you think of the spirit of Christ that lives in us, when there's an opportunity to, do, to, to serve and you have the power within your hand to do it, the ability, the time, or you can make the time, which is maybe more the question, we should be battling over those opportunities. There's people standing in line. Leadership in churches shouldn't have to beg for service because God inspires us all to serve as he leads and as he's able. The delightful thing is God was pleased to answer. That's what we have to see. God is sovereign to work, but he delights when we seek his will. I don't think God was sitting there reluctantly saying, well, I suppose I'll do it your way and, you know, we'll figure this out. I think God is delighted when his children look to him. That shouldn't be so hard to understand if you've been a parent. When your kids actually come to ask you for advice and begin to follow it, want your guidance, it's like, whew, isn't that wonderful? And that's our Heavenly Father all the more so. He was pleased to answer. And you can argue the validity of placing a fleece before the Lord, but God, the lesson here is that God delights in directing his children. This rendezvous was checking all the boxes of his prayer request. And then in verse 21, he begins to wonder, is this the one, as things begin to line up. And he's not through yet. There's more to determine. But he began to wonder, in verse 21, did God, has God made his way prosperous? Is this the woman for Isaac or not? You know, what we find in this chapter is the delight of God directing his children. In verse 22, we see, so it was when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a golden nose ring, weighing half a shekel and two braces for her wrist, weighing ten shekels of gold, and said, Whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? And so she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, We have both straw and feet enough and room to lodge. And the man bowed his head and worshipped. Well, we're going to speak more on this next time, but you could say this is the same thing to asking, Are you a Christian? Today, that's what we'd ask. Whose daughter are you? Do you belong to a godly family or not, is what he's asking. 
Those are the ones who Abraham trusted to provide a godly mate for his son. And, and that's in essence what he asked when he said, whose daughter are you? Are you a Christian? You see, the boxes had been checked, but there was a more important question to ask. And that goes back to what we talked about discerning the will of God, of submitting ourselves to the authority of God and being transformed into living the, the word of God out in our lives. That was the most important thing. You see, in discerning the will of God, we must do so with great respect for God's word, that determination to follow it. No argument, no excuses, no reasoning. This was a question that settled it, at least to, at least to continue. It was just, this was a yay or nay question for the servant. If she came from an ungodly family, no matter how many boxes were checked, how many, how many stars lined up, the story would be over. And so what we find in this account is, the, not, is God directing his servant as he depends on him by faith, as he has a respect for the authority of God's word and the guiding principles it gives to our lives. God delights to lead his children. The question for you and I are, are we seeking? That's where it begins, God's will. For humanity, it starts with salvation because the first step in being led by God is to come to know him. It's to have our sins forgiven, to become a child of God. And the Bible says we're all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then as his children, we begin to grow in dependence on him. And we need to recognize in our lives, just as this example says for us, the most delightful place we can be, the brightest future we can hope for in our daily lives is in the perfect will of God. And that's what we should seek. And when we do, God is delighted to lead. They knew that in the Old Testament. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, I believe, means obey the Bible and all your heart. Trust him. Believe it's true. Live in light of it. Don't lean to your own understanding. Don't lean on self-reliance. Instead, acknowledge him. Acknowledge his word. Depend on him in prayer. Use his word in the guiding principles of your decisions. And we have this wonderful promise, he will direct your paths. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this demonstration in the Old Testament, Father, for you have set before us a chapter which shows a real-life example of what it means to live out your will, to walk by faith, to depend on you for guidance and direction in this important decision of marriage. And so, Father, thank you for the example that's set. And may it encourage our hearts to seek your will to recognize that your will is best for us. It promises the brightest future, the, 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 the most stable and safe life we can live. And so, Father, thank you that you are a God who promises to direct. May we trust you to do so. So take these things we've learned today and apply them to our lives for your glory now. In Jesus' name, amen.